Hitler's stock was plummeting by that stage in many circles and certainly among the military they thought what have we done supporting this man how can we get rid of him and how can we save Germany and it's not in the DNA or on the hard wiring of military officers to turn on their commander-in-chief but there was an understanding that the only person who could get rid of Hitler was going to be a military man and that's why the plot started focusing on active measures, how to rub him out. Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend, James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. There were well over 40 known attempts to assassinate Adolf Hitler, some of which came very close to success. They ranged from a communist carpenter to a Prussian colonel, and historians often marvel at how Hitler avoided the bullet and the bomb on so many occasions. After all, even British intelligence itself had at one stage plans for his violent demise. This then is the story. So, Jamie, where do we start? Well, I think we might as well start in the 1930s. Hitler was obviously on a high. He was Reich Chancellor. He was leader, Führer of Germany. And it was very difficult to turn against the Nazis when they were doing so well. They had ended the Depression. Germany was rolling forward. The people who opposed Hitler were, were few. Uh, there were a few from the old days, the old guard. There were a few theology students. There were some communists. But on the whole, Germany was given hope again. That's what they believed, that Hitler had made Germany great. And if you look at the people who were against Hitler, both then and later on, so few of them actually talked about the destruction and horror that Germany had foisted on the rest of the world. It was usually put in terms, couched in terms of what had happened to Germany, how had Hitler brought them to this. So you can see that the the mood in Germany was incredibly positive, incredibly pro-Nazi, and it was very difficult to go against that. I remember talking to an old spy chief, Sir Dick White, who was former head of MI5 and MI6. One of his first espionage jobs for the secret intelligence service was posing as a student and actually being at the Nuremberg rallies and he said I remember the electricity running through the crowd yeah he said it was it was just extraordinary and he said that was the moment I realized there was no stopping them yeah, the, and these were the uh, sort of street fighting years wasn't it so they as an organization were were fairly up for it Yes, they were. And the, the, the people who opposed him, I mean, for example, you go back to 9th of November 1938, and one of the famous incidents that, that never actually ended up with Hitler being killed was a Swiss theology student, Maurice Baveau, who had a pistol with him and was going to take a pot shot at the Fuhrer as he went past. And unfortunately, the number of people raising their arms against Sieg Heil uh, got in the way of a clean shot. So that never happened. Uh, then you get the following year uh, a plot by once the war had started and Poland was invaded, you had a victory parade in Warsaw and there were a group of 
Polish officers who wanted to detonate a 500 kilogram bomb and blow up Hitler, but the victory parade was diverted. So that never happened. You go on a month and you get the famous Munich bomb attempt. That was Johann Georg Elsa. Uh, he was a carpenter and a communist. And he had built his own bomb and added a 144-hour fuse and left it in the Munich cellar in which Hitler was going to make a speech. Hitler left early. The bomb goes off. It killed eight. It injured over 60. And Elsa was eventually captured, was not executed until 1945 at Dachau, when by that stage the Nazis were simply eradicating anyone who had challenged them over the preceding years. Uh, the, the Germans had a policy called Nacht und Nebel, Night and Fog, and it was the same policy essentially that allowed them to exterminate all uh, Western agents who had been caught during the war. And so many of the people who were plotting against Hitler, who hadn't been executed already because of the Stauffenberg plot uh, in 1944, uh, that's when they were finished off in the last few weeks of the war. The Nazis got their revenge. Yeah. Okay. So those are the early days, the 1930s, when uh, these kind of lone wolf attacks were made and failed. But then we we move on to perhaps the, the few people who genuinely opposed Hitler, as opposed to just just doing it for Germany. Yes, and as I said, they were they they were small in number. You had the Kreisau circle, who were mostly religiously inclined. You had the Wednesday Club, who had army officers, but also had diplomats, and these individuals who numbered in total probably less than 50. They all knew each other. They all knew what their motivation was. And they produced their own covenants, their own uh, political tracts, arguing why Hitler shouldn't be in power. You also had individuals, for example, like Admiral Wilhelm Canaris of the Abwehr, who was always profoundly anti-Nazi, and he comes into the picture later on, and we'll we'll talk about him. Yeah. But from his Fuchsbach, his Fox's Earth, they, the 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 Germans loved calling their their command centres wolf's lairs, fox's earths, eagles' nests, you know, you name it, uh, anything with an animal connotation, but. You know, there were this group of people, they were anti-Hitler, but they recognized that until Hitler started losing, until the German people started losing faith, it was very difficult to take him out. Okay, and uh, what about the White Rose organization? Well, the White Rose were really a pacifist organization. They were deeply imbued with Christian sensibilities. They started producing pamphlets. They produced six in all, uh, produced thousands of copies of each, started distributing them around Munich University, other towns in the area. And their tale was really one of the most tragic for me during the war. They were extraordinarily brave but had the naivety of youth i guess they were all 20 21 their ringleaders there were mainly three there were hans and sophie scholl and christopher probst they were amazingly brave as i said they were quickly rounded up they were betrayed sophie was seen throwing pamphlets down into a university atrium by a janitor they were rounded up Anyone crossing the Nazis 
by then, this was 1943, were going to be executed. There was no doubt about that. There were about 150 members of the White Rose, and the ringleaders were brought before the appalling judge, uh, who was called Roland Freisler, the people's judge. And you always know that when the, the word peoples is put before something, that it's a fig leaf for despotism. And Freisler, who ended up becoming notorious for ranting and raving at the Stauffenberg plotters who were rounded up, was essentially the judge, the jury, the prosecution and the executioner of the Nazis. And so Sophie Scholl, Hans and Christopher were brought uh, before him. He laid into them big time and Sophie was extraordinarily brave and answered back firmly. They said, we are on a Christian mission. We didn't believe in Hitler. We didn't believe in the invasion of Russia. He is destroying Germany. One of the things about uh, Freisler is that once he passed sentence, and he had already decided, uh, uh, you were basically executed within about two to four hours. And so they were taken and they were guillotined. The next freak, I suppose, in the Nazi uh, picture here was Johann Reichardt, the Nazi state executioner, who during the Nazi period guillotined and hanged thousands of people. The Nazis didn't use the long drop method. Uh, they used what was called the Austrian or short drop or pull method of hanging. And when it came to people they considered traitors, they tended to do it with piano wire. And that kind of hanging is basically strangulation. It's strangulation. Yeah. And so it's it, not a quick, uh, you can, it can take up to 20 minutes to die. It can. And, and, and when it's done with piano wire, you have your neck largely severed as well. It, it's it's uh, the most appalling death. After the Stauffenberg plot, of course, Hitler said, slaughter them like animals. And this is what uh, Freisler and Reichardt set out to do. It was the it was the the, the revenge of the Nazis, and uh, so so that was the short and tragic story of the White Rose. But they certainly weren't part of the power elite or the military elite. They were really a sideshow in the in the, in the wider story of assassination plots against Adolf Hitler. They simply wanted a change of government, but they weren't calling for assassination or violence of any means. Well, uh, up until this point, then, it was uh, the amateurs, the non-military, who were making a stand. But there was a moment when this changed. There was a seminal moment when the whole world changed and the world for the Nazis altered. And that was the 2nd of February, 1943, the fall of Stalingrad. It was a seismic shock to the system. As Ulrich von Hassel, who was a member of the Wednesday Club, put it in his diary, that was the moment the Germans realised that their so-called miracle worker and brilliant strategist was nothing more than a megalomaniac corporal. For the German military, who had supported their commander-in-chief, who were awed by the victories that they were achieving, that was the moment where everything changed and Germany from henceforth, was on the defensive. And 1943 was catastrophic for the Germans. It was the tipping point. It was the hinge on which the war finally turned. 
It was, of course, the fall of the German army at Stalingrad, as opposed to obviously the fall of Stalingrad. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, it was von Paulus's sixth army. They were encircled. And an army that had been between 250,000 and 300,000 strong uh, ended up 70,000 surrendering to the Russians. And across the whole front, there had been casualties of almost a million men. I mean, it was, it was that appalling for the Germans. It was, it was dreadful. And then later in the year, you got the Battle of Kursk, where, again, the greatest tank battle in military history. And, and from that point on, the Germans never went forward again. They were never on the offensive again. They were on the defensive. And it was one of the most significant and rapid retreats in history. Uh, in either ancient or modern times. And so Hitler's stock was plummeting by that stage in many circles. And certainly among the military, they thought, what have we done supporting this man? How can we get rid of him? And how can we save Germany? And it's not in the DNA or on the hard wiring of military officers to turn on their commander-in-chief. But there was an understanding that the only person who could get rid of Hitler was going to be a military man. And that's why the plot started focusing on active measures, how to rub him out. Okay, so there there was rising despondency and there were additional defeats that followed quickly after Stalingrad. Oh, they just followed on from each other. I mean, first of all, you have the war in the Atlantic, the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force, of course, in being involved, um, had turned the tide, the Battle of the Atlantic, helped hugely by the breaking of the Enigma. So we we finally got on top of the U-boat menace, and they were suffering heavy casualties. So they hadn't brought Britain to to heel. They hadn't brought us to our knees uh, with the U-boats. So that was one huge failure. Then, finally... The Africa Corps were defeated in North Africa. Yeah, uh, May, the, May 43. That's right. And then we ended up invading Sicily. And then, of course, mainland Italy, September 43. So things were going badly wrong, not just on the Eastern Front, but as I said, in North Africa, Italy, and the war at the Atlantic. So Germany was suddenly on the defensive. And, and of course, you had Bomber Command laying waste to huge swathes of German industry and their cities. And this was only going to get worse. So that was 1943. You hit the winter, one of the worst winters on record. And so by early 44, Germany is really tottering. It's in a bad shape. You have starvation and hunger in various places. You have people getting their shoes made out of newspaper you have they're the, losing hope they're losing hope and also they're losing their defenses the Messerschmitt factory at Augsburg was devastated 90% of its capacity was destroyed it, it's they're in a bad shape the Germans start clutching at straws the Nazis put out propaganda about miracle weapons on their way that Hitler has something up his sleeve that will save Germany and the Reich and there was even talk of a, a, a freezing weapon, a freezing bomb, whereby 
the, the Luftwaffe would drop a bomb that would r reduce the temperature to minus 100 degrees centigrade uh, for five kilometers around. And the Nazis actually put that out as propaganda and people believed it. There was a great belief in Vergeltung, retribution, that someone was going to pay, the Brits were going to pay. Amazing, for... the idea of retribution, when it was really that they'd... they'd behave so appallingly themselves and that they were thinking about retribution yes they never but but you have to think in terms of a civilian population that are being dehoused by bombing that uh, that see refugee crises growing everywhere that see their industry laid waste i don't think it occurred to them that they started it i think as your grandfather bomber harris put it Yes, they yes they sowed the wind. Yes, yes, and by by forty four they were certainly reaping the oh. whirlwind. So so that is the context in which the German officer corps start thinking in terms of let's get rid of Adolf Hitler, let's expunge our commander in chief and retrieve something, some honor, some dignity, something for Germany to look forward to from this situation. And then, of course. 6th of June 1944, the Normandy landings. Yes, and by that stage, the, the, the die is cast. And, and so, yeah, it's no coincidence that the Stauffenberg plot arrives a month later. But let's go back to 43. Let's start looking at some of those plots because they are extraordinary and the, and the individuals involved were amazingly brave. Right, so the plots. March 1943. Yes, and again, it's no coincidence that these blew up just after the fall of Stalingrad at the beginning of February '43. So if you want to see the source of these plots, you need look no further than Army Group Centre because they were the ones on the brunt of so many of these setbacks and reverses and retreats on the Eastern Front. And so in mid-March, 1943, Hitler flew to Smolensk. In that conference, during that period, there were three distinct plots to kill Hitler. And again, he had the luck of the devil and managed to get out of it. There was uh, von Tresco, senior officer, and he wanted to shoot Hitler with pistols with friends of his. But of course, the column in which Hitler was traveling was too well guarded and he couldn't get a shot um, you know as similar to the plots that failed you know in the 1930s against Hitler um, there was also the problem that Himmler wasn't present so the next plot there out in Smolensk was cancelled by von Klug the the, the general the, the the probably the best known one uh, at that point was the famous Courvoisier bottles the two brandy bottles that were handed to Hitler's ADC Colonel Brandt and they were given to him. Was Colonel Brandt aware? Oh, absolutely not, because no, he okay. would have been he would have been blown to pieces himself. Mm. So what happened is uh, a special ops lieutenant called Schlabendorf handed him these two brandy bottles. Some say that they were in a crate. They were probably in a presentation crate. Those bottles are believed to have come from the British. Now, whether they were confiscated SOE weapons or actually handed to Schlabendorf to um, the anti-Hitler plotters uh, via Canaris, Admiral Wilhelm Canaris of the Abwehr, which is actually most likely, um, and had been handed to Canaris by the Brits. Who, who knows? 
But unfortunately, the bombs in those brandy bottles didn't detonate. Apparently, the detonators got iced up on the flight uh, back to the wolf's lair. And so Hitler wasn't blown to pieces uh, up in the sky. So, so that failed. And Schlabendorf later had to go to the wolf's lair and retrieve those brandy bottles. So it must have been a terrifying moment to have nail biting. Absolutely terrifying. But it, but it, it shows the sort of lengths that these anti-Hitler plotters would go to. And so quickly after after the you know the failure at Stalingrad that these these plots start to uh, take place. Yes, they did start to fester and and because I think anyone who had been near the front w- would know that things were turning very sour indeed and very serious for Germany. Uh, you know again if you look at the the the, the next plots I mean what w- another amazing plot uh, was later on in March, and that was in Berlin when Hitler um, went to the armory on Unter der Linden uh, to look at captured Soviet weaponry. There was a uh, again a senior uh, German officer von Gersdorf. He had two bombs in his pockets. He had set them for ten minutes, and he was going to go up to Hitler, give him a hug, and detonate himself. Uh, so why did Hitler only stay there for eight minutes? Well, there's a bit of mystery there, but I stumbled upon something quite interesting. When I was researching Endkampf, my thriller about wiping out the Nazi hierarchy, I discovered that Hitler was being medicated and self-medicating on atropine and strychnine in vast doses, almost lethal doses by that stage. And this was because of bad blood circulation and because of the shakes that he had in his arm. Atropine, one of the side effects, is it makes you very sensitive to light and sound. So the one thing Hitler would not have wanted to do is stay at any reception for very long. So he didn't, uh, he just didn't stay around. And von Gersdorf had to go to the bathroom and desperately uh, try and turn the bombs off defuse the bombs. And I certainly would have rushed for the gents if I had been uh, carrying two bombs in my pocket that I knew were about to detonate. It just goes to show what a wreck Hitler was by that stage as well. If you look at what he was being given by his quack physician, uh, Theo Morell, Dr. Theo Morell, it is extraordinary. I mean, Hitler is essentially, I mean, Hitler is essentially a walking pharmacy. Uh, he was on Eucadol, um opiates. He was on uh, Pervitin, the amphetamine to keep him awake. He was on atropine. He was receiving extract of bull semen. He was on extract of pig's liver. He was on hormone treatment. He was on testosterone. He and and most of these things were being injected, which is why his veins started collapsing because he thought it would act quicker and he had a terrible gut problem so he didn't actually like taking pills because he thought it would interfere with his gut so he was on all these pills and so he could barely think straight i mean he was almost a junkie by that stage and after the bomb plot the stauffenberg bomb plot uh, when his eardrums burst he was then on cocaine as well um, and I guess couldn't hear very much either. No, and be, but but the cocaine was delivered intravenously, so you can imagine he was he High. he was absolutely bombed out of his mind by that stage. That was von Gersdorf, and and we're just talking March 1943 at this stage. Yeah, the assassination attempts start coming thick and fast. Um, by November, 
1943, there's another extraordinary attempt on his life. And this time it's by von Buscher, uh, who is essentially being used as a male model because he was supposed to model the new Wehrmacht greatcoat for Hitler. And he was, in Nazi terms, the classic Aryan, uh, good-looking Prussian officer. So he was brought in to wear a greatcoat. And of course, in this greatcoat, he was going to carry a bomb. And this one wouldn't have a 10-minute fuse. It was going to have a 4.5-second fuse. And he also had a knife in his boot just in case it didn't work so he could then stick it in Hitler. But what happened? The train carrying the great coats were hit by the Royal Air Force. And so there was no um, no modelling. No for fashion von parade. There was no fashion parade in Berlin. And von Buscher wanted to do another fashion parade with a great coat. But later on, his own commanding officer said, you are not a model, you are an officer, you're coming back to the front. And Busher ended up losing his leg, and that particular bomb that he had ended up under his hospital bed. <laughs> um, <laughs> Where are uh, we going to hide that? Yes, yes, it eventually ended up being thrown into a lake. But it, it, it just shows the sheer bravery of the individuals involved mm. uh, in trying to kill him by this stage but we i mean we should really also remind our listener that all along this is about saving the face of germany isn't it still it, it is about saving the honor of germany but also stopping the punishment of germany right and uh, so is there a change from their attitude i i think they realized early 1943 they realized that hitler is a lunatic and a monster and germany is going to collapse so they are hoping that they can bring the moment forward when their commander-in-chief is got rid of and they can do a peace deal, some sort of peace deal, and some sort of compromise with the West, with the Western allies. What, what, what then, Without unconditional surrender. Well, what then changes is that I think they realise the Brits and Americans aren't, aren't interested in doing a deal. So... Uh, you know, they know that the Allies want an unconditional surrender, so they think, well, we might as well get rid of him anyway because you know, he's not doing us any good and it will shorten the war. I think the, 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 the main prerogative is to, to, and the main priority is to shorten the length of the war and try and salvage whatever comes from that. Okay, so we've got, that's 43. 1944, the plots continue. Yes, the plots did continue into '44, and they, they, they gathered pace in a sense because in a way we're, we're working towards the, the famous Stauffenberg plot, the July 20 plot, 1944. So in March '44, uh, there's a conference at the Berghof. An officer called von Breitenburg turns up, not with a bomb this time, because he was offered the chance of wearing a Swiss bomb under his uniform, but he decides, nope, I want something more reliable. I am going to carry a Browning 7.65 pistol in my pocket. So he turned up at the Berghof Villa, Hitler's residence on the Obersalzburg mountain. He hands over his field revolver and his belt to security, and he's waiting in reception. He's going in with his field marshal because he's the aide to this field marshal, who, who ironically is called Buscher as well. Um, like the previous assassin. <laughs> um, but he, he's about to walk into the conference room 
and he has decided he's going to put the bullets at Hitler's head because he thinks Hitler might be wearing a, a bulletproof vest. And an SS guard stepped towards him and said, no, only generals and above can come into this conference. So he is sent back into the reception area and he is convinced that he's been found out. And he sits there absolutely terrified. And after that, he decided, I'm not going to have another attempt. He rather lost his nerve. But he survived. He survived the war and uh, lived for decades, uh, just like von Buscher before him, who also survived the war. They were two of the few plotters who didn't end up being strangled at the end of Piano War uh, from a beam in Plötzner's AGL. Yeah, so they had very good reason to be terrified. They, they did. By July 20th, 44, as you said earlier, the Normandy landings had occurred. The officers who want to kill Hitler go into overdrive. By this stage, they really have placed all their hopes, uh, all their planning on Klaus Schenk von Stauffenberg, who by all accounts was extremely charming, incredibly charismatic and, and very calm. He had this sense of destiny. He had this deep Catholic faith. He wasn't what we would call uh, a, a liberal democrat. And he was from that Prussian officer caste. He wanted Germany to be great and strong and everything else. And he, and he saw Hitler as a threat to that. He thought that his, his role was to save Germany. So, so much has been written about Operation Valkyrie, but the essence of it was that he would wipe out um, Hitler and his high command at the Wolf's Lair with a bomb. The Wolf's Lair is the Eastern Front. It's East Prussia. Command it's center. East Prussia. Yes, yeah. it was Hitler's command center in, in modern day Poland. So he turns up with his bomb. Unfortunately, that bomb does not have shrapnel in it. So what he did, he went and set the bomb, set the timer, goes out to ostensibly make a phone call. In the meantime, Colonel Heinz Brandt, the ADC, who had been given the brandy bottles, as you recall, uh, back in March 1943 and wasn't blown out of the sky with Hitler there, it was Brandt who nudged the uh, briefcase with a bomb in it under the table leg, behind the table leg, um, trying to create more space. So the bomb goes off. Colonel Brandt was one of four who died. 13 were injured. After that, as they say, the shit really hit the fan. Hitler survived. He had burst eardrums, but that was it. And Himmler, who had been rather waiting in the wings, a bit like Robert Sissel during the gunpowder plot, you know, he, he, he wanted to see plots mature. He wanted to then use his coming down hard on them and solving the problem and, and getting over the crisis as a means to feather his own nest and improve his position. Uh, so he, he, could, he could round up everybody in his Rolodex who he didn't approve of. Completely, and this is exactly what happened. Hitler declared that he wanted all the opponents, all the people even loosely connected with the Stauffenberg plot, slaughtered like animals. And that is essentially what happened. If you look at the uh, aftermath, 7,000 people were arrested. Of those, almost 5,000 
died. Uh, they were executed, although put in camps where they died. Again, like the White Rose, the students back in 1943, they were dragged before Roland Freisler, the people's judge. Uh, many people have seen the footage of those trials, and it, it's chilling. They, 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 yes. they, they, they were... They were Basically, they were made a public spectacle, weren't they? They were show trials, and they were there really to be denigrated and humiliated. And, and if you see the treatment of senior field marshals and generals, they all had their shoelaces taken out, their belts taken off. There was one field marshal who started trying to pull up his trousers, and Freisler was screaming at him, are you fiddling with yourself? Yeah. And there was another field marshal who had his false teeth uh, confiscated so that he was sort of couldn't speak properly. Uh, there were some extraordinarily dignified moments. I mean, some of the defendants, the bravery of them against this onslaught is 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 just amazing. And uh, Ulrich von Hassel, the the very dignified former ambassador to Italy, was caught up, as were other members of the Wednesday Club and the Kreisler Circle. They were all rounded up. The later Chancellor of Germany, Helmut Schmidt, who is a young officer uh, at that stage, was a witness to Ulrich von Hassel's trial and said what an amazingly dignified man he was. He barely answered the taunts of Freisler. He, he just viewed it as though it was beneath his, his contempt, which it was. Yeah. And they were all quickly executed. Uh, Von Stauffenberg had it lucky. He was put up against a wall and shot. So many of them ended up on the piano wire of the Nazi state executioner, uh, Johann Reichardt. It was, it was a very grisly and dreadful end, and so many of the families of the plotters, including babies, were sent to concentration camps. So it was Himmler and Hitler's chance to wipe out an entire officer caste. OK, so they weren't the only plotters, though. The Brits had some ideas of of assassinating Hitler. They did. Um, they, they went a bit cooler on it later on in the war, but certainly as a sort of default position, as a, as a last resort, they were certainly looking at the possibility of killing Hitler. And you look at the early format of Operation Foxley, as it came to be called, the MI6 file, it was very detailed. Um, the initial plan was to poison the water supply on Hitler's private train, America, which, as you can imagine, was then renamed Brandenburg as the war got underway and, and America entered the war. That moved on to plans to bomb America, the, the, the train. They looked at all possibilities. I mean, I've walked the ground of, of many of these locations. It's quite spooky. It's very, there are a lot of ghosts. It's very evocative of that period. If you go to Schloss Klesheim, where the German high command stayed and operated from when Hitler was at his Birkhoff villa in Bavaria, the Klesheim is just outside uh, Salzburg, and it still has two Nazi eagles either side of the gate plinth. But you, you look at the plans of Operation Foxley and the sketches of Klesheim including the ACAC stands, the hard stands for the ACAC guns at the back, they're all there still. And, and it's very spooky. The, the power plant 
the electricity generation for Schloss Klesheim is still provided by a U-boat engine. So <laughs> nothing has changed. Mm. But so Foxley looked at the possibility of taking him out there. And actually, the German officers had also come up with a plan for taking him out there. Um, they looked at taking Hitler out in his colon, his, his cavalcade of cars. But as we all know, it's quite difficult to kill someone in, in a cavalcade um, unless you're Reinhard Heydrich and killed by SOE agents in Prague, for example. Yeah, and even that had its moment, doesn't it? Because I think the gun didn't go off. Yes, I mean, it, there's, there's too much left to chance. Yeah. So in the end, Foxley looked at killing Hitler when he went for his morning walk. He, he was a man of routine, Hitler, and I've walked this path, the very path he used to take. And it's a 20-minute walk, and it goes from the Berghof downhill because Hitler suffered from vertigo and never walked uphill. And he used to walk to his tea house, which flew a swastika flag when he was in residence. So 20 minutes later, he turned a small corner into a clearing, and there was his tea house. And he'd have his cherry juice and discuss quite often his plans with his senior generals. And one of the reasons that MI6 looked at taking him out there was that he liked to walk alone. He would have been out of sight of the sentry posts. And it walked past a sort of farm that Martin Bormann had set up um, to show the, the wonders of German agriculture. So it would have been a perfect location for a sniper. And they did start training a sniper for that. But for many reasons, um, by 1944, and certainly by the Normandy landings, where they got more information about the Birkhoff and, and Hitler surroundings from his personal bodyguards who were in the Wehrmacht or SS who had been captured, they decided to drop it, um, partly because Roosevelt flatly put the whole idea down, saying he didn't want to deal with the East German Junkers if Hitler had been killed, and they wanted unconditional surrender. If they had killed Hitler, he would have become a martyr. There might have been a better military strategist take over. And Hitler was worth his weight in gold. He was worth 100 allied divisions. He was so bad at military strategy. Yes. And so they decided to, to leave him where he was. But it was very actively pursued. Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, head of German military intelligence, the other, had actually met... Uh, Sir Stuart Mingy's head of MI6 and William J. Donovan, while Bill Donovan, head of the Office of Strategic Services, head of American intelligence, are out in Santander in the summer of 1943. And that's where they had hammered out a plan. And who arranged that meeting? The head of MI6, Iberian section, none other than Kim Philby. The traitor. Absolutely. And the, and, the, and the Soviets would have been terrified of an idea of the Allies coming to an agreement with Canaris to kill Hitler, have a peace with Germany, and allow Germany to go on fighting the Soviets. Absolutely. That, that would have terrified them. Not that it didn't stop them having their own little arrangement with the Nazis when it suited them. Well, exactly. So I think on so many levels, the, the plan for Foxley failed. And, and the Germans knew that. And that's why there were so many of these sort of smaller attempts uh, by the German officer cast to kill Hitler, because they knew the, the Brits wasn't, weren't going to help them, the Americans weren't going to help them. Uh, they had to do it on their own. Well, I remember when I was at school, enjoying very much Geoffrey Household's book, 
uh, Rogue Male, which was about a lone wolf, an Englishman going over to Germany to assassinate a leader. It didn't actually mention Hitler as such. And then the whole adventure of him getting caught and getting back and pursued by the agents of that country. Well, it gave rise to a, to, to a lot of fiction. I mean, that's why I wrote Endkampf, because when I was walking on the Obersalzberg mountain, it always struck me that a couple of hundred yards from Hitler's Berghof villa, set behind wire and concrete, was a labour camp for Czech labourers. And I always thought, well, if you were going to try and take out Hitler, why not bring in the Czech labourers on the Obersalzberg mountain? And they were there to build villas, to... Um, put up air defences, etc., etc. That's how thrillers start forming in a mind, by, by walking the ground. I rather wonder if it wasn't the other way around with Rogue Mare, which I think was written in 1939. So perhaps somebody at MI6 read the book. <laughs> how very prescient. OK, Jamie, so what was the aftermath of these various plots? I think the people around Hitler became far more cautious, as did Hitler himself. By that stage, as we've already mentioned, he was being medicated with extraordinary quantities of pharmaceuticals. He didn't like crowds anyway, unless he was giving speeches. But by that stage, those days were over. He was kept away from the limelight, away from a lot of conferences and meetings, bearing in mind that most of the potential plotters had now been wiped out. That entire level of military officers had been rounded up and slaughtered. There wasn't that cadre of men who would go out of their way to assassinate him anymore. In a way, he was much safer then than he was before. Uh, he also acquired a second dog. He already had Blondie, the German shepherd. He then got another one called Bella. And the number of bodyguards around him uh, were increased. His movements became even more erratic. He just was moved from pillar to post. And eventually, as we know, uh, he ended up in the bunker. Blondie, the German shepherd, was used to test the cyanide capsule uh, that Hitler uh, eventually took and Eva Braun took. So, and Bella, what happened to her? No, no one quite knows what happened to Bella. Hopefully she escaped and mm. had a decent life. Let's hope so. Yes. Uh, and so many of those plotters who weren't executed right at the start, weren't executed when the Stauffenberg plot uh, was uncovered, like Canaris, ended up being killed shortly before the end of the war. Canaris very foolishly kept a diary, uh, lodged it in a bank, in a safe deposit box, and the Gestapo found it. It was shown to Hitler, and the fate of Canaris was sealed. He was hanged again with piano wire at Flossenburg concentration camp uh, three weeks before Hitler killed himself. So he never quite got to the end of the war, but he did write his last diary entry saying that his conscience was clear and he had done it because he wanted to save Germany from the insane criminality of Hitler. Yeah. Is, are his diaries still available? Were they published? They, they have been published, yes. yes. Okay. I wonder if it would be worth saying a little bit at this point about the equivalent plots against the other leaders, Stalin, Churchill and Roosevelt. Yes, there were always plots, but not in the, in the, in the same way that they evolved around Hitler, because uh, we're not talking, apart from uh, Stalin, we're not talking about tyrants. There were a few cranks who tried to kill Roosevelt. There were a few cranks who tried to kill 
Winston Churchill. The main plan was put forward uh, for Otto Skorzeny to lead a group of Fallschirmjäger uh, parachute commandos uh, for them to fly in to the Tehran conference and kill Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin. Uh, the Soviets have made a great deal of this, but actually it never really got beyond the uh, the, the supposition stage, the, the early planning stage. Yeah, well, the other plan to kill Churchill, one of the plans, one of the few plans in the war to kill Churchill, was basically a German spy in Lisbon observing an actor's agent called Chenholz uh, and another fellow, Howard, boarding a commercial flight to London and thought that was it was Churchill and his quite well-known bodyguard, Walter Thompson. So the Luftwaffe were informed and the plane was shot down and 13 people were killed. Um, and actually Churchill wrote in his memoir, his war memoir, um, the following, the brutality of the Germans was only matched by the stupidity of their agents. It's difficult to understand how anyone could imagine that with all the resources of Great Britain at my disposal, I should have booked a passage in an unarmed and unescorted plane from Lisbon and flown home in broad daylight. Shades of the Eagle has landed, I think, uh, as well. <laughs> sword to the Danny boy. And, uh, <laughs> no, that's where Eagle's death. Oh, no. <laughs> to cut that out. The, yeah, the, we'll but, leave it all. <laughs> but, but, you know, as all these attempts on Hitler's life show, there's so much sort of farce, luck, and bad luck, mostly, in not being able to get through to him. There's, there's so much chance involved. Hitler always had the luck of the devil, and no one could quite understand how he got away with it so often. But, yeah, the Allies had the last laugh. The luck of the devil turned out to be the opposite for him and the defeat of Germany. So what happened to Freisler and Reichardt? Well, Reichardt actually survived the war as executioner, and uh, the Allies had the last laugh there because he was actually brought in to hang senior Nazis after the Nuremberg trials. And it's one of the reasons they say that he went mad and he did end up in a, an asylum at one stage, but he outlived the war. Uh, whereas Roland Freisler did not. Uh, he was doing his usual ranting and raving at defendants and sentencing them to death. When there was an air raid on Berlin on the 3rd of February 1945, and the American Air Force flew over. There was an air raid warning. Freisler asked for the court to be closed, for the defendants to be taken to an air raid shelter. He stayed back to clear his files. And at 11.08 a.m. in the morning, an American bomb fell on his courthouse and he was crushed by falling masonry. So there is a God, this bombastic evil taunting, ranting little man was finally expunged from history. Bloody violent history takes a turn for the better. It certainly does. Um, any postscripts, Jamie? There is a postscript, Tom, and it's a poignant one. Because after the war, the Stauffenberg family got back their confiscated lands and their magnificent castle, Schloss Greifenstein, overlooking Bamberg. And my parents knew the next generation of Stauffenbergs, and my mother was staying out at Greifenstein. She said to the Grafin, the Countess, to our family, to our country, Klaus von Stauffenberg is a hero. And the Grafin 
looked back at her and said, to our family, he was unwise. Later, there was a big dinner and there was a long grace said before that dinner. And the Grafin turned to my mother and said, one needs to have starved to say a grace like that. And I think it gives a, a small insight into the horrors and the suffering that were brought down upon the heads of that family and so many others in the aftermath of the July 20 plot against Hitler. But when the Grafin died, there was a wonderful obituary in the German press, and it spoke very movingly of her many children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And so I think it's fair to say that ultimately, hope and humanity prevailed over the evils of the Nazis. And one further thing, the Grafin bred a superb line of Irish terriers. So I think the anti-Hitler bomb plotters, coup plotters, won out against Adolf Hitler and had the last laugh. So there you have it. All those attempts to bump off Hitler failed, and perhaps we are fortunate that they did, given his failures after 1942 as a leader. As we know, he did everyone a favour by chomping down on a cyanide capsule, putting a bullet in his head, and thus assassinating himself. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck.